All right, well, it is so good to see you here this morning. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, towards the middle part of your New Testament, after the Gospels, after Acts, after Romans, keep going a few more books and you will find Philippians. And today we begin a study through the book of Philippians, Lord willing, for the next, next several weeks. And today I want to talk to you about the joy of just being a Christian. The joy of just being a Christian. I've talked to a lot of joyful people lately. And the reason they're so joyful is, is that they're letting Jesus Christ change their life. And one thing we've been talking about, we've talked about it in our college class the past two weeks, and I, I may have said it from the pulpit before. One day on dictionary.com, all right, a secular website, I was looking up the definition for the word enthusiasm. And as I scroll down, if you go on dictionary.com, not only will it tell you the definition, but it will tell you where the word originated from. And did you know that every time you use the word enthusiastic or enthusiasm, it literally comes from the early church. After Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, ascended back into heaven, the church started, the Holy Spirit came, and Christians were going around telling other people about Jesus Christ. They were telling people that Jesus saves. They were telling people that you need the gospel. You are a sinner. Jesus Christ died for you. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the power that can transform your life. You need to receive him by faith. And as the early church went around and did that, they got so excited by sharing this with people and then seeing people change that the word entheos came to be. The word entheos is the Greek word in God. Basically, they could not find a word in their vocabulary to describe the joy that they felt whenever they shared Christ with someone else and then that person received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So they came up with a word that just said, in God. I, I, it's, it's so, the joy is so indescribable that all I can say is it's just a God thing. And that's where we get the word enthusiasm. Did you know that? That's pretty incredible. So this week when you use the word enthusiastic, it's a God thing. And the Bible says that the Christian should be the most joyful person on planet Earth <laughs> because they've been saved from their sin, not just for eternity, but right now they can walk in victory. They have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and that brings them joy. And joy explodes whenever you fall more in love with Jesus Christ on a day-to-day -day basis. That overspills, and all of a sudden you get a burden for other people. And you want other people to know that just like Jesus Christ saved you, He can save them. And you want to share that with them. And there's no greater joy for a Christian than when they share the good news and a person that they were sharing it with turns from sin and darkness to Jesus Christ and is transformed. There's no greater joy. The joy of just being a Christian. Well, we find ourselves this morning in the book of Philippians. And God used the Apostle Paul to write this book or this letter to the church that was located in the European city of Philippi during his second missionary journey. Paul had three missionary journeys. And on the second missionary campaign to reach the Gentiles, and you may be wondering, who are Gentiles? Uh, most of us in this room are Gentiles. It's anyone who's not a Jew. And uh, Jesus came uh, in the form of a human, be human being, in the form of a Jew, God's chosen people. And God wanted His gospel, His good news, to go from outside the Jews to all of us who are Gentiles, praise the Lord, so that we too could be saved. And Paul, on his second missionary journey, was sharing this across Europe. He was starting churches. 
And the very first church that he planted in Europe was the church at Philippi. Now, it's been several years later when we find ourselves in this letter, and Paul is in jail. He's in jail the entire time he's writing this letter. He has been put in jail for one reason, not because he's a criminal, but because he simply shares Jesus Christ. Uh, just this past week, uh, we talked about on a Wednesday night prayer meeting here. I'm not sure what the situation is now, but there's a Christian missionary in Iran, and Iran is very hostile to Christianity, and because he's sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, he is subject to be hanged, and he has many children. Please pray for this family. This is serious stuff. We say, oh, that only happened in the Bible. No, did you know there have been more Christians martyred in the past hundred years than in all the, all the centuries put together? Hostility to Christianity is massive, and it's growing in our country. Uh, Satan does not want us to get on fire for God. Satan does not want us to share the good news Jesus saves, and so persecution arises. But you know what's so great about God? God allows the persecution to come. In fact, most of the Bible is written to people in persecution, and the church flourishes when it's persecuted. It flourishes because it shows the lost world there's something going on here, and if these people are willing to be persecuted to share that Jesus saves, whoa, I need to pay attention to what they're saying and how they're living. Well, Paul is in jail. He's in custody for this primary reason. And he writes a letter to the church at Philippi because they loved Paul, and because he was in jail, they had sent him money to try to take care of his needs, and they sent along a Christian leader by the name of Epaphroditus to minister to Paul while he was imprisoned. And so Paul writes a letter back to the Philippians. It's the Word of God. It's the inspired Word of God. It wasn't just intended for the church at Philippi, but intended for all generations of Christians who would come after and he's got two major themes that we're going to see in this letter. And here's the first one. The first major theme that Paul's trying to get across to us as Christians is, is you should have one goal for your life, and it's this. Pursue being like Jesus. One goal, Paul says. Paul says, I've got one passion in life now. It used to be living for myself. It used to be taking pride in my wealth. It used to be taking pride in my education. It used to be taking pride in the fact that I was a Pharisee and I could speak law in several different languages. It was taking pride in being religious. He goes, all that is rubbish. He said, all that is rubbish now. He goes, I've got one holy passion. I've got one ambition for my life. And he says, you should have it too. Pursue being like Jesus. Notice what he says there. He says, not that I've already attained. He says this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, not that I've already attained it. I'm not there yet. None of us will be. We will not arrive to this point until we see Jesus face to face. Or am I already perfected? God's still working on me. But here's, here's one thing I do. I press on. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I'm not there yet. But one thing I do. I've got one holy passion. I forget the past. I can't do anything about the past. I wish I didn't have a past, but I do. But I forget that, and I reach forward to those things which are ahead. I am pressing on to what God wants for my life. I want to be like Jesus. I want to share the gospel to, uh, until my last dying breath. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying? He's saying you should have one holy passion in your life. And now at this time, pay attention to the pastor. As, as, as what they're doing is, is they're, they're dictating my volume and they're, and they're showing you how they make this sermon sound so good. But it's all electronic, all right? Um, um, he said, you should have one holy passion in your life. Be like Jesus. Here's the problem with the church today. That's not our passion. 
We've gotten sucked in with the rest of the world and we've got a passion for material things and we've got a passion for popularity and we've got a passion to always be liked by everybody and we've got a passion for comfort. We've got a passion just to be comfortable, not to ever take any risk, not to ever share our faith. That's why statistics tell us that only 2 out of 100 Christians share their faith with someone. You would think that if we've been transformed by Jesus, that we would want to see other people transformed by Jesus, but our love has grown lukewarm and cold. Paul says, here should be your number one goal for living. Be like Jesus. That's the theme of this book. He says, and I got one more theme for this book. There's a second one, and it's this. God says, I want you to have an unshakable joy. An unshakable joy. Throughout this book, we're going to see over the next several weeks, in probably 15 or 16 verses, Paul cannot get over being so happy. And, and, and we would think when we read this book that, oh, he must be really happy because he's living it up. Man, he's not having any problems. He's not having any trials. It's just all cozy cushion, all right? That's not true. When Paul writes this letter, he is in jail. He is in jail. And 16 different times in this book, he just talks about how happy he is. Anybody have a bad day this week? All right. Anybody have a bad couple of days this week? All right. How happy were you on those days? You know, so many times the circumstances, especially in the pastor's life, I will tell you, I struggle with this probably more than anything else in my Christian life, is letting the circumstances be joy leeches and suck me dry of my joy. Because I, instead of glancing at circumstances and gazing at God, on my bad days, I gaze at the circumstances and I glance at God. And just as I received Jesus Christ by faith when I was five years old and trusted in Him, the Bible tells me I've got to keep living every moment by faith. I've got to keep on trusting. Not so that I can remain saved. Or I'm eternally secure in Him when I trusted Christ. But I've got to trust Him for every need. I've got to trust Him for everything. I've got to trust Him for every second of the day. I am supposed to live as a desperate person for Jesus. Here's my problem. Many of my bad days are not handled real well because I'm not living in humility and desperation before God. I'm living in self-sufficiency. And when I'm self-sufficient, I worry. When I'm self-sufficient, my life is full of anxiety. When I'm self-sufficient, I'm stressed out. When I'm self-sufficient, I'm irritable. When I'm self-sufficient, I don't talk to people like I should. And the list goes on and on and on. Anybody ever seen that commercial before? All right. Anybody ever had that happen in their life before? And I tell you, there's one thing, if you could pray for me for one thing, there is one thing I'm wanting to grow up as a Christian in, and it's this right here. I want to have unshakable joy. I want to get to the point that one day you can come to my office on the worst of days, and you say, you know what? Pastor is the happiest person I've seen today, but his day stinks. This should not be. The two don't go together. And do you know that in Christ we can rejoice in all things? In fact, there's a verse here, uh, as the Paul says here. He says, I'm telling you, I'm in jail, and this is what I tell you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Don't you wish we all could be as happy as Aaron? Aaron Weekly. <laughs> do you notice Aaron, when he sings this song, for some of us that makes us feel uncomfortable because we just don't get that happy, and we don't get that happy in front of people. And I always appreciate Aaron when he sings because he doesn't care what you think. Every time I sit back and I watch him sing, I'm like, he doesn't care what they think. I love that. Because I need more of that. I need more unashamed joy. 
I need more getting excited about Jesus in my life. I need unshakable joy. And that's the second theme of this book. Well, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take it verse by verse, and we're only going to go through about verse 8 this morning, just piece by piece, as we start this book together. Look with me in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible says, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back up with me, verse 1, first two words, Paul and Timothy. You say, who's this guy Timothy and where did he come from? I thought Paul was writing this letter. He is, but he talks about here that basically we get the idea that probably Timothy dictated this for Paul. Uh, he wrote it down as Paul was inspired by God and given the words by God. Timothy wrote it down. And Timothy was a, is, is a person that Paul mentored. Timothy's a younger guy, late 30s, early 40s, and he ha came to know Christ at a young age. His grandmother and his mother ministered to him all the time. I don't, I'm not sure where dad was, all right? Aren't you thankful for people that have ministered to you? Aren't you thankful for grandma and grandpas that got you to church when mom and dad didn't? Aren't you thankful for moms and dads that love the Lord and loved you? And can I tell all the kids or the teenagers something in here? If you've got a mom and daddy that both are Christians and love the Lord, you better get down on your hands and knees and you thank God for them. Because most people in this room did not have that. You thank God for having a mom and daddy that love the Lord Jesus. And don't ever go against the grain when they're telling you love the Lord Jesus. Don't fight against them on that. You will regret that so bad. Thank God that you have a mom and daddy that love the Lord Jesus if you have one, or a grandma and a grandpa, or an aunt and uncle, or someone else in your life. So Paul came along like a dad figure, and he helped Timothy grow in the Lord. Timothy was Paul's little project. And Paul just invested in Timothy and invested in Timothy, and one day Timothy grew to be a pastor. And 1 first, first Timothy and 2 Timothy are written to encourage Timothy. He's a young pastor. He's about to crush under the pressure. He's got so many problems going on, and he's about to come unglued. And Paul writes to encourage his young protege to keep on keeping on. You know what? Every Christian in this room needs a Timothy. You need someone that you spill over to, and the day you quit spilling over to people, you're going to lose some of the joy that Christ promised for you. Listen to me, men. Some of you men who have been Christians for years, it's time for us to mature to the point that we can grab someone else who's not as far along as we are and help them grow up in the Lord. That's why we're starting a men's Bible study tomorrow night, resolutions. We want to see men be courageous and first of all, start with their own homes and help their children grow in the Lord. There's drastic things that happen when dad is spiritually absent. The silence of Adam brought sin into the world, and men still want to be quiet. Men, we need to grab some men in our life, some young men like Timothy's, and help mold them into the Lord. This morning we had 21 people in our college class. Half of those were young guys. Some of them have only, have only been saved two to three months, some of them only three weeks. Prime opportunity, men, grab one of these young guys and say, hey, I'd like to take you out for coffee and invest in you because I want to teach you what God has taught me. And you know what I found? Young people are thirsting for it. They are dying for someone to invest in them. You need a Timothy. You need a Timothy. So Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but when I turn to the New Testament, most of the New Testament books start out this way. Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, you'll read verse 1 and you'll just keep on trucking. 
All right, let me get to the stuff that I can actually understand. Let's get on to the good stuff. Be careful about running through the Bible and not looking at every word because you will miss out on powerful nuggets. And here's one, bond servants. That gets me every time I read that. You know what amazes me about that, first of all? This is the Word of God. God is telling Paul, it's inspired, it's God-breathed. God, under His inspiration of His Holy Spirit, is telling Paul what to write. And by God's own testimony, he says this, Paul and Timothy, they are bondservants of mine. You know what scares me so bad when I read that verse? If God was writing the Bible today, which He's not, don't let anyone tell you He is, we have the completed Word of God, but if God was writing the Bible today would, and, and he's decided that he was going to use me, he was going to speak through me to write a book in his Bible, would he be able to say, Mark, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus? Or would he have to say, Mark, a bondservant of being comfortable? Mark, a bondservant of people. He just, he's so eat up with pleasing everybody and making sure everybody's happy that he can't please Jesus. Mark, a bondservant of money. Mark, a bondservant of the American dream. Mark, a bondservant of wanting to be successful. Or would he be able to say, Mark, a bondservant of Jesus Christ? Do you know there's few people that we come across that we could literally say that and it'd be true? You know what the word bondservant means? It's an amazing word. Look with me on the screen. Bondservant means a willing slave. This is what it literally means in the Greek. A willing slave who was happily and loyally linked to his master. One who voluntarily gave his service because he loved and respected the boss. Someone whose will, and I love this part of the definition, someone whose will is consumed in the will of another. They've given up their ownership rights of their own life. Their life is not their own. They're basically saying, yes, Lord, yes. We submit to Jesus' desires, what Jesus wants, and Jesus' control over our lives. That's a bondservant. You know what? There could probably be no greater thing said of you the day you see Jesus than for Jesus Christ to look at you and say, you, a bondservant. To the world, we say, hey, I'm not going to be a slave of anything. I went to college, I read books, all these sort of things so that I can live life the way I want to live it, so I can be in control, so I can do what I want to do, or whatever, you fill in the blank. This world does not look real highly on humility. This world doesn't look real highly on us giving up rights. You know what the Bible says? The best thing a Christian could aspire to in Christ-likeness is becoming a bondservant of Jesus Christ. When was the last time you woke up on a Monday morning and said, Lord Jesus, I am your slave today. Hallelujah. I am your slave. You just tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. And there's so much freedom in that because that's all I've got to do. One day when I see Jesus, here was my only assignment. Mark, did you do what I wanted you to do? That's my only assignment. That's the only thing I've got to be concerned about in life. You see the freedom there? No wonder Jesus said, come to me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I take out all the junk that you're living for, and I get it down to one thing, and it's the best thing, and it's for God's glory, and it's the best for you, and it's the thing that will bring you the most joy, the most satisfaction, the most fulfillment, and it's this. Will you listen to the Lord Jesus and literally say yes and mean it with your life? Notice I didn't say, will you attend church? Will you do this? Will you join the next Bible study? You know what Jesus is after? 
He wants you to say yes with your mouth and yes with your life every day. As you study what a bondservant was in New Testament times, some masters would put an earring or a nose ring on their slave and that would brand them. That would brand them so that whenever someone saw that slave, they would say, oh, he belongs to that master. And the only thing I can think of when I read that is, is, is you know, you got this earring here and somebody pulling you by that earring or a nose ring, somebody pulling you by the nose, they're going to need a really big earring for my nose. And, um, and uh, um, as I think about that, the only thing I could, that kept coming to my mind as I was preparing for the sermon is, is I just want to ask you the question, I want to ask myself the question this morning, what's pulling you by the nose these days? What, what, what's got your ear these days? When you wake up tomorrow morning, I mean, really, what, what is grabbing you by the nose and pulling you along? And I want to tell you this. One day when we see Jesus, if it was anything other than him, we're going to be very, very, very disappointed. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. For the world, they look at that and say, you fools, I cannot believe you would do that. To a Christian who really gets it, he says, oh, there's no greater thing. Where are you at this morning with that? Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Then notice what he says. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Before you say, oh my goodness, this is boring. Oh my goodness, let's move on. Whoever reads this stuff, all right? We always skip over this stuff. Notice what he says here, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Notice he didn't say, who was a member of a church? How religious you are. Are you a good person? He's saying, no, 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 no. I'm writing this letter to the saints who are in Christ Jesus. We're going to talk more about that at the end of the sermon, about what that means, but I want you to pay attention to that. To the believers in Christ Jesus, to those who've been born again, to those who've been converted, to those who've turned from their sin to saving faith in Christ, who are in Philippi, with the bishops, that word means overseer, elder, pastor, and the deacons, the, 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 the leaders of the church. And here's what he says to them in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? What is grace? I want you to look on the screen on that. Grace. Grace is unmerited favor. You say, what in the world does that mean? It means the Lord favors freely and He extends to give Himself away to sinful people. That's literally the word meaning of grace or charis. Grace, unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. You know what people's biggest roadblock to heaven is? They think they deserve it. People's biggest roadblock to humbling themselves and simply receiving Jesus by faith is, is that they don't, they don't see a need for Jesus. I'm not really that bad of a sinner. I haven't really done bad things. I don't really need a Savior. I bet if you go down to downtown Luray today and start asking people where they are with Jesus Christ, do they feel like they need Him, most people may say, I need Him, but as you get to talking deeper, you find out real quick, they don't see their need for Him. That's irrelevant to my life. Why would I need that? And the reason for this is we're blinded to the fact of how badly and desperately you and I needed grace. When you see how lost you are in sin, when you see how you have failed every moment of your life almost in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and putting everybody else 
in the right place, putting everybody else first before yourself, loving people like God loves them, when you see how desperately you have failed at that and how lost you are in your sin, then all of a sudden you look to the cross and say, oh my, I need a Savior. But there is such a stumbling block to that. And so we won't understand grace until we see how lost we are. It's unmerited favor. I didn't deserve it. I can't earn it. Some people, I bet if we walked to downtown Luray and they looked at me and they said, hey, Mark, uh, I know you're going to heaven. And I would look at them and say, why? How do you know I'm going to heaven? They said, because you're a pastor. They would literally believe that. I've had people look at me before and tell me that all my kids were going to heaven. And I look at them and I say, tell me why. Because I'd like to know. All right? They said, because you're a pastor. I'm like, oh, wait a second, wait a second. You're saying because my kids were born to me and I'm a pastor, they're in? Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. You know what? You are not in until you've experienced grace. <laughs> you don't deserve it. If you can work your own salvation like all the other religions of the world, there is no need for Jesus Christ. Grace. You don't deserve it. It's wonderful, marvelous grace. The love of God for you. Though you were hell-bound, a sinner, lost in your sin, the day that God convinced you of that sin and you turned from that sin to Jesus Christ, you experienced grace. What a wonderful thing. But then also he notices, or he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. What is peace? Because everybody's looking for it. Everybody is looking for peace. In fact, I, I would dare you to do a project this week if you get your news off the internet like I do, or even off television, regardless, watch the nightly news and look at how many people are looking for peace. Go on Yahoo this week and just check it. And I bet you, I bet you, I shouldn't bet. All right, never mind, forget that. I guarantee you that there will be several times this week as you look on Yahoo News, you will find someone who's a celebrity that has gotten themselves in really bad trouble because they're looking for peace but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. What is peace? I love this definition. This is literally what that word means in the original language. It's God's gift of wholeness for an individual. It means that they're no longer, they no longer have a noisy soul. They're undisturbed. There is rest. They are set at one again. They've been restored. You say, what is that talking about? Well, the Bible tells us that before we come to know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we're not at peace. Anybody, anybody testify to that? Before Christ, there is no peace. There is no rest. There is no quietness of the soul. And you're looking into all sorts of different things. It disturbs me as I talk to law enforcement officers and find out just here in Page County how many drugs are coming on the scene just in our own county with our young people. They are looking for peace, but in all the wrong places. And you're looking for it, and you can't find it, you can't find it. And it's like C.S. Lewis said, and we quoted this several weeks ago, your heart is not at rest until your rest is found in Him. And you can go try to find peace in all sorts of places, but it will not satisfy until you come to the One who designed your heart to only be satisfied with Himself. You ever been in the nursery? I remember growing up, they had this... I don't know what they're called. They were like these plastic balls and they had all those shapes in there and then you take the plastic shapes and you've got to find the right shape and push it in. Anybody, everybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody been a nursery worker and was fumbling around for 50 toys trying to get a kid quiet? All right, everybody ever had that? All right, 
I, I can remember picking one of those up with kids before, and I'm like, hey, look at the triangle, look at the star, look at the square, and they're fumbling around trying to get to work. You know what? Many of us have forgotten that we were designed, we were designed to only be filled up with God and satisfied in Him alone. That's why you, you see millionaires all the time that are searching for more and more money, but something hadn't quite got it yet. That's why when you go back and you look over your life and every little thing that you've pursued, you found that nothing ever really gets it. Nothing ever fits in the shape and, and fits just right until it's with Jesus. That's why when you're really walking with Jesus and you're satisfied with Him, you don't care really a lot about anything else. Because you got it all in Him. It fits. Did you know you were designed to fit like that? And so everybody's running around all over Page County and the rest of the world trying to find every day what fits. And it's Jesus Christ. Peace. And the Bible says that when you turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you then are reconciled to God because your sin separated you from God and now you're at peace with God and your soul is at rest. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice something there. The grace and the peace only come from God. He says, grace to you and peace, not from Paul, not from Timothy, but from God alone. Look with me in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. We're going to go over these quickly because I have something else that I want you to see at the end of the message. And I just want you to look at these quickly with me. Notice verse 3. This is very simple. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Paul says, when I think about the church... I'm thankful. When I think about other believers, I'm thankful. Here's the simple thing. Be thankful to one another, for one another. Don't bicker with one another. Don't cause strife with one another. Don't try to put yourself above one another. But get on your knees and be thankful for your church. You know what? It has been so amazing this year, especially in, in having ten different funerals this year. Just that I've personally been involved with. How many of those families, after those funerals, and you've shown your love for them, have looked at me and said, I didn't really understand what it was like to be part of the body of Christ in a church family, but I do now. I need those people. Aren't you thankful for your church family? Paul says, when I think about the church at Philippi, when I think about the Christians who are there, I just thank God in my prayers for them. Here's the second thing Paul said about the church. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, but verse 4, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy. And that's what's up on the screen now. Paul says this, let me put it in English. Love people on your knees. Paul says, I get so full of joy when I pray for you. He said, I just love praying for the Christians there at that church. I pray for them that they would be guarded from the evil one. I pray for them that they would grow in Christ. I pray for them that they would stay away from sin. I pray for them that they would not backslide. I pray for them that they would get along. I pray for them that they would stay away from false teaching. I pray that they would grow, and I just love praying for them. And you know what? As I look at that verse, some of my best times in prayer are praying for you. 
Until you're a senior pastor, I, mean, I can remember times in the past I was praying for our youth groups and I was praying for people in our previous ministries, but there's something different when you're the senior shepherd and you feel the weight and responsibility for the people. And I will tell you that some of my best times in prayer this year are when I've taken the membership list of our church and people who are attending our church and I just go through it and I pray for your family. And I almost get giddy by the time I'm finished. You say, that is weird. You need medication. Well, some days I do, but I hope it's because I'm falling in love with you. I want to love you. And one of the greatest ways that I can love you and you love your family is on my knees taking you before the throne of grace. How many of you love it when somebody prays for you? I've had people walk up to me before and say, Pastor, you didn't know this, but I've been praying for you every day. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding. Don't you have something else better to do? I mean, that you would even think of me to pray for me. Thank you so much. You don't even know how bad I needed that this week. Paul says, I get so overwhelmed with joy because I love praying for you. I want to tell you, pray for the people in this church. Pray for the Christians you know. In fact, as you leave today, back in the vestibule, there is a list of everybody that we could think of as of three or four weeks ago, and it's changing by the week, of people who are attending Mount Carmel. And we gave that to you so that you could pray for them every day of the week, and we've divided them up. Pray for the people here. But notice with me in verse 5, he says, I also am thankful for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He basically says that word fellowship means you are in a partnership. You have partnered with me in the most important thing on planet Earth, and that's this, sharing with people that they need Jesus Christ. We have a union together. We have a close bond together. We stick together. We have a partnership in the gospel. I'm not going to embarrass, so I'm not going to use a direct name, but I had a new Christian tell me about two or three days ago that they've really had the chance now to witness to their first person, a friend. And they had this desire to share Christ with them. And this week, their friend is coming to talk with me. And then the person told me this morning, hey, I'm already working on my second one. <laughs> and, and you know, one thing I thought when I got that text is, I'm ashamed of all the times for someone who's been saved 28 years of all the times I got over being saved. When was the last time you, you shared Christ with somebody? And when was the last time that no sooner did you get done sharing Christ with that person that you were ready for your second one? I love that. The church grows when people love Jesus. That's all there is to it. When you love Jesus, you share Jesus. You say, Pastor, I'm not really good at it. You don't have to be good at it. Pastor, I'd like to learn more about how to share Jesus. That's fine. We'll do that. I think there's importance of that. But we can have evangelism classes all day long, and I'm so thankful for the one that we've had on Sunday mornings with Walt, but Walt will tell you this too. You can have evangelism classes all day long, but until you've got something springing up in your heart that says, I love Jesus and I want other people to know about him, you can, you can know how to do it till you're blue in the face, but you won't do it. Love people. You know, we have a partnership in the gospel together. You know, I've got family members that don't know Christ, and even though they're my family and we're an earthly family and we have a bond, my bond with them isn't anything like the bond that I have with some of you because we love Jesus together. We are partnered in this thing together. I've got family members that do know Jesus, but they're not part of the work here, and I love those family members, and we're very close, but I'm closer with some of you in some ways than I am certain family members who are Christians, because you partner, we partner together in the work here to see everyone that we can in Page County come to, come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, we're like glue stuck together. We need one another. 
We have a partnership in the fellowship. Aren't you thankful for that? And I love you because of that. And we're a team. And we're together. And we've been called to do the highest thing on planet Earth. That's be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And that's a glue that should hold us together. That's why there's no room for bitterness in the church. There is no room for us being upset with one another in the church and not getting it resolved. We are knit together closer than earthly family. We have a fellowship in the gospel. And can I tell you something as your pastor? It is a privilege to be in your fellowship and to do this thing together. Amen? Amen. Let's look at the last few things. He says, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We're going to have to finish there this morning because there's one last thing I want to show you. And, and basically, here's the thought on that. We'll pick up the rest next week. Here's what he says. God is still working on you. He said, you know what? The day you trusted Jesus Christ, God was pursuing you. He was convicting you of, of your sin. Your heart was about to beat out of your chest. You knew you needed to respond to the gospel, and you put your faith and trust in Christ, and that was just the beginning. That's just the baby steps. Now you're saved. Now you're reconciled to God. Now you are heaven-bound. Now you have a personal relationship with God, but that is just the beginning. God now is doing a holy makeover on you, trying to get you to grow up in Jesus. And he says, you can be confident of this. God doesn't stop on his projects. God finishes what he starts. And he says, you can count on this. God's number one goal for your life is for you to become like him. And he is going to work overtime trying to see that, trying to get you to respond to that, trying to get you to cooperate with that, his will in your life. And he's not going to finish until the day you see Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful for a God that loves you that much? He is after you like a hound dog. And if you'll, you say, that is a very weird way to put that, all right? But I just had a flashback to my North Carolina days, all right? Woo, all right, all right. He, he, is, he is, though, he is after you. He is trailing you. He is hot on your trail. And that's why if you're a Christian, you can't sin and win because the Holy Spirit is after you. I'm so thankful for a God that loves us that much. Aren't you thankful that God is so patient that he just keeps on coming. He's not finished with us. He is working on us, and he will complete it. As we close today, we're going to close with a video that is so important. I want you to come back. Some of you may have shut your Bibles. That's fine, but I want you to come back to verse 1. He's writing this letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And there are some of you who sit here today and you're wondering about that statement right there. Pastor, I've heard you say a lot about Christians today. I am not sure if I am one. Saint? Whew. I'm not a saint. Well, can I tell you? No one is in and of themselves. How in the world do you become a saint? Because that's who he's writing to. And he says, there are some. And they're there at the church in Philippi. And you know what that word saints means? It simply means one who's been forgiven of their sin and is following the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in and of ourselves, we are not saints. We are desperately lost and wicked. The Bible says the heart is so wicked, how can we even fathom its wickedness? How evil our motives are. How in the world then do you become a saint? It's only when the great exchange takes place to where you give Christ your sin and He gives you His righteousness. 
the men are going to bring up a video. Here's what I beg of you. This is the closing of our service today. I am begging you. I am pleading with you. I am, I am, I am so pleading with you. Do not check out on this video. Because I am convinced that some of you are sitting here today and there has never been the great exchange. You've been coming to Mount Carmel. Something's drawing you to Mount Carmel. Something's drawing you to Christians that are here. But you are not 100% sure if you were to die today, you would go to heaven. And you're not 100% sure if you have a relationship with Christ. And you are fuzzy on this thing. And we want to share with you some truth so that you don't have to be fuzzy about it anymore. Today would be a great day for you to come know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But let me tell you something else. As you watch this video, you're going to see a very simple biblical presentation of the most important decision you will ever make or that's ever been presented to you. And Satan wants to take the information you're about to get and snatch it away from your ear so that you don't get it. So I'm going to pray right now that we would be guarded from that. And as the video plays, I want you to pay so close attention to how you can be a saint in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. And God, we just come before you right now and ask, Lord, that there would be no distractions, that there would be no, there's nothing else more important, that you would arrest our attention, that you would grab our eyes, and that you would spiritually open up our hearts to the most important truth that can be shared. God, today I'm praying that if there are people here that do not know Christ, they've never become a saint in Christ Jesus, and in their mind they think, they think that means they've got to become perfect. They can't. I can't. It means you've got to become forgiven and trust in the one who is perfect. And I'm praying, Lord, that right now, that that exchange would take place in people's lives as they embrace you by faith. In Jesus' name.